All right, all right. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Excellent. Hey, I'm excited to get to be here with you. Good looking out, man. I appreciate you. Excited that you guys are here and excited to get to share the morning with you. Not often, uh, well, you know, it, it is uh, somewhat regular. Uh, you know, so I had some folks say even this morning, hey, do I know you? And, and I promise one, one, uh, one lady said, hey, do you do CrossFit around here? To which I literally laughed out loud. I was like, no, that is so much cardio. Uh, anything over three reps is cardio for me. And so I am definitely out on the CrossFit. But uh, my family and I, we get to, and we have been a part of the community for many years, uh, starting back in 2008. And we had a little uh, uh, opportunity where we kind of did the three little pig thing where we went out and built our families and sought our fortunes and kind of all of that thing across the state. And, uh, and now we're, we're making our way and, and anchoring back down in the community. And a great privilege for me is that I get to teach about once a month. And so if uh, you're going, I see him sometimes, but not always, that's why uh, I get to preach here once a month. And so all that said, uh, I'm excited that we are continuing, and John asked me to continue in the series on Romans, uh, because it is a little bit of, it is a little bit of stretch for me to dive in and to teach uh, rather than to uh, preach, uh, right? It's to, to, to uh, normally, my, my go-to is to dive into the wisdom teaching uh, and, and to, to lean in and to encourage through the wisdom teachings. And so for John to ask for me to jump in and to teach from Romans was a little bit of a stretch. And, and so much so that I thought, you know, it's, I met with um, Tuck Beach, Dr. Beach, and he's a psychologist or a psych, uh, whichever one's a shrink, whichever one that is. That's what he is. Uh, and he says, people call me a shrink all the time, like I just did. And he said, I'm not a shrink. He said, actually, what I do is I'm a stretch. And so I get people to stretch a little bit. And this is a stretch, just a little bit for me. But nonetheless, I'm excited to do it. You know, when we think about Romans, there's a lot to be said of it. There's a lot of gems of, of a verse, right? A lot of our favorite verses come out of Romans. And what I would like to do today, before we dive into chapter two, is I'd like to give us a big picture framework to understand the argument that's happening across the letter of Romans so that as we see our favorite verses throughout, we can see where our favorite verses fit in a larger argument. And that's important because verses in and of themselves are beautiful and good, but when you put them into the great context, they become phenomenal. You think about, I like to go hiking uh, and the national parks and America's greatest ideas. And, you know, you see photos from people taking trips to Yellowstone or whatever. And there's one photo, it's a picture of them at Yellowstone. And they don't say, I'm on the such and such trail. They say, I'm at Yellowstone. And even though that one picture is a part of Yellowstone, when you realize that that's just one particular spot in hundreds of thousands of acres of incredible beauty, you realize just how magnificent Yellowstone is. This trail is great. This one photo spot is phenomenal. But when you zoom out and you see how much more there is, you recognize how much bigger it is, how much better. Same thing with Romans. And so as we think about Romans, let's think about the gospel. Let's think about the good news. Because if we can understand the good news, then we can understand Romans. So think of it like this. Think about two chairs. Let's say that this chair is God and that this chair is man, me and you. And the Bible says, in the beginning, God created. 
And God created everything there was and everything that we see, everything that we don't see, God created. The lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, God created them, right? He created the mountains and he created the skies and the darkness and the light. He created that is because God created. In the first five days, the Bible says he created all this stuff and it was good. But on the sixth day, God did something different. On the sixth day, the Bible says that God created man and said that this is very It's not just good like the mountains, but this is very good, something wholly different because God created man in his own image. And God created me and you, God created man to be in relationship with God. That again, if you were to imagine these two chairs, that this is how life is meant to be. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse four, that God has created everyone and everything on purpose. That there is no accident in you. That no matter what your parents' intention, God has intended for you to be here. That the fingerprints of the Almighty cover your DNA. And that we were created to be in relationship with God. But because God loves us, God gave us free will. He gave us a choice. And with that choice comes the opportunity to stay as life is meant to be in relationship with God, or there's the opportunity to say, thanks, but no thanks, God. I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. But there's the opportunity for us to turn our back on God, and that is called sin. And no matter the shape of the sin, at its root, sin is selfishness. It is a self-faithfulness that I will be faithful to myself, that I will be faithful to my wants, my desires, my ways. Thanks, but no thanks, God. I don't wanna do it your way. I wanna do it my way. I don't wanna live by your rules, God. I wanna live by mine. That turning of the back, that turning of allegiance from God faithfulness to self-faithfulness is called sin. And the Bible is very clear that there's real consequence for that sin. And when we think about that consequence, we often think about the consequence of death eternal. And that's a real thing. But before that, we experience death in life as a consequence of sin. We experience it through divorce, experience it through hate, murder, war, and looking down and devaluing other people because of the color of their skin or where they come from. We see it in selfishness. We see it in short tempers. We see it in abuse. We see it over and over and over again. The consequence of sin isn't just that one day after you've lived life the way that you want, you'll die and go to hell. We'll see what happens. Let's roll the dice. But that you experience life as it is not meant to be in the present. That in many ways, this brokenness, this broken world becomes the closest to heaven that you'll ever be. And so when this happens, lots of times, can I tell you what we tend to think? Because we're Americans and we like to win. Here's what we think. We think that, you know what, we've chosen to say thanks, but no thanks, God. I don't want to do it your way. And so we think that when we turn our backs on God, we choose to believe that God turns his back on us. 
But you know what? That we believe that God says, I don't want anything to do with you because you don't want anything to do with me. And the next part of that thought is, well, if God doesn't want anything to do with me, that's fine because I'm getting my way. But then we find out, oh, wait, my very best is getting me my very worst. I don't like life the way that I'm going. Everything isn't going the way that I thought it would go. Maybe I need to get back with God and get things right with the big man upstairs. And so what do we try to do? We try to win God's attention. Hey, God, hey, God, uh, over here. God, look, I've really turned my ways around. I'm not drinking so much anymore. God, hey, will you, will you pay attention to me now? Hey, hey, God, I, I've really I started giving. I mean, and God, I'm, I'm reading my Bible verse a day to keep the devil away. I mean, I'm in it. Jesus, just come look. Come on, will you see? And we think that we can get God's attention if we just do enough right. That we can get God's attention, and if we work long enough and hard enough, then maybe God's attention will turn back to us. And whew, things will be as it meant. The reality of the good news, friends, the hope of the gospel, the message that we'll read about through Romans is this, that when we choose, though we were created to be in relationship with God, all of us, regardless of age or stage or status in life, that when we choose to say thanks but no thanks, God, that God doesn't turn his back on us and wait for us to win his attention back. The Bible says that when we turn our backs on God, that God chases after us. That when we turn our backs on God and say, God, I need to go and find love. And I'm going to go, I need to be loved. I just want to be loved. And, and we go, no, I'm going to go look for love over here. God chases after us and says, no, don't you understand that I am love? You can't find love in some pimple-faced high school punk. Are you kidding me? I created love. I am love. And we say, oh, no, God, you don't understand. I need significance. I need some letters behind my name. I need some zeros in my bank account. God, I need to show and prove that I am somebody. God says, don't you understand? Your value and worth is found in me. You can't find it in a bank account. You can't find it in status. Are you? And you say, no, God, you don't understand. I mean, I have really messed up. I mean, I have really, I mean, I have screwed the pooch in more ways than you can imagine. And God, you could never forgive me. And he says, don't you understand? No matter how great your sin, don't you know how great my love? The Bible says in Romans in chapter five, for while we were yet sinners, while we were here, while we were in our great turning back self-faithfulness, Romans 5 eight, Christ died. He came to prove just how great his love for us is. Because we were all created for this that life will never make sense until you understand that you were created to be in relationship with God. And so long as you're steady turning your back on God, thanks, but no thanks, God, I wanna do it my own way, life will never make sense. But the moment that you go, Jesus, I want you to be the boss of my life. Jesus, I wanna be in relationship with you. This is how it's meant to be. I need your grace. Then all of a sudden, it changes everything. It changes our relationship with God. It changes how we live. It changes everything. And you see, friends, if you can get that, you can get Romans. But before we do, I want to ask this question. I'd, be, I'd miss a mark if I didn't ask this question. Friends, what is your relationship with God like? Is it as it's meant to be? Or have you been chasing life somewhere else? 
I mean, if we were just to, to, to pick and put your life in chairs, which represents your life? Life as it's meant to be in relationship with God. Are you living with your life turned away from God, thinking that God wants nothing to do with you? Friends, the good news, the hope of the gospel, the reason that we sing and sing and sing and celebrate and give is because some 2,000 years ago, Christ died. Christ came, the word put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood to set things right. And it's not just an ancient story. It's the rhythm and flow of history. Because you've got to understand, from the very beginning, God has been chasing after you. You're not here this morning by accident in Bulverde, Texas, September 15, 2019, because it's just what you do on Sunday. You're here by appointment. God's been chasing after you for a long time. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve chose to say, thanks, but no thanks, God, I don't want to do it on your way. I want to do it my way. They were sent out from the garden, but God chased after them to provide for them. From the very beginning, God made a promise to Abraham. He made a covenant that he would be faithful and that through Abraham that he would give the many nations and that, that, that God would be known across the world through his seed. He gave a covenant, a promise to Abraham. And he was faithful to that even though Abraham said that my wife is so old that I need to laugh at the thought of her having a baby. God was faithful. And through his sons came a great nation. And then that nation was put into captivity at the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus. They were put into captivity, and yet God was faithful to his promises, and he raised up a leader named Moses. And Moses came and, through God's power, set God's people free and began to teach them to live in accordance with God's laws. But they didn't like those laws. They didn't like doing things their way. And so trouble came, consequence came, but God was faithful. And brought the judges to help point them the right way. And through the judges and to the kings and David, even though he wasn't always a great king, God was faithful. And he pursued them through the kings and then through the prophets until 2,000 years ago, the word put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Do you see the rhythm of history has been one long pursuit of God chasing after his people? 2,000 years ago, the word put on flesh and blood moved into the neighborhood. Jesus comes and lives the unlivable life without sin, loves the unlovables, heals the unhealables, hangs out with the unhangoutables with one simple message that if anyone would receive him, that he would give them the right to become children of God. Not born of the will of man, but of the will of God. John chapter one, verse 12. And that to prove that Jesus wasn't merely someone who talked the talk, but that he could walk the walk, he was crucified on a cross, betrayed by his very best friend. He was nailed to a cross, not as a passive victim, but as an active redeemer. One who is actively doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And there in complete control was nailed to a cross, not because of his own doing, but because of his own choosing. He was dead, buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day rose again, proving that he was God. And it was from there that a message with 12 teenage boys, 11 teenage boys, that a message has traveled through the generations from Jerusalem and Rome all the way through to Bulverde, Texas today. That you could be asked, what's your relationship with God like? You gotta understand, friends, God is faithful. And he's faithful to pursue you. And if you can get that, you can get life as it was meant to be and you can get Romans. Now, I got a little excited. 
We ain't even say the Shema. I ain't even started preaching yet. I ain't got to the notes. So let's dive in. And as we open up our scriptures, let's stand together and declare the Shema. Uh, and we do this not as a mute tradition or mundane tradition, but I was thinking about this. We do this as like this reset button of like, yo, this is who God has created me to be. This is who I want to be. And like sometimes like I'm a forgetful person. Sometimes I, I don't live this way. And yet, my sometimes failing to live this way doesn't disqualify me from being this. It's like, no, this is who God has created you to be. And so we declare, we say some in Hebrew. Um, the part that we say in Hebrew is just the first lines of what we say in English. So Shema merely means hear, O Israel. Uh, Adonai Elohim, the Lord our God. Adonai Echad, the Lord is one. And we'll say that in English. And we do it as a reminder because we can be a forgetful people. Be reminded of where we come from, of all that God has done and all that God will continue to do. We say it with our pinky held high as a reminder that in the tip of God's smallest finger is enough power not only to change our lives, but to change the whole world. So if you would, this is who you desire to be. Declare the Shema with me. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Grab a seat and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And I would encourage you to take out something to take notes with. You know I like to say a short pencil is better than a long memory, uh, which is true because 34 is hit hard. And so if I don't, read it, if I don't write it down, boy, I forget it. And so there's going to be a lot here. Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about, Pat. And so uh, we need to uh, write it down so that we can remember now, again, I tell you, if we get the gospel, we get life, and we get Romans. Because Romans is one giant argument. And it is an argument that's being made from Paul to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome is not a church that Paul founded. Uh, it's a church that was most likely founded by Jewish Christians who came to know the Lord through Pentecost. And so it is deeply rooted in its Jewishness. And this will come, uh, this will prove to be a, a matter of contention, not only in this letter, but across all of Paul's ministry. And we see over and over again, we see it in Acts, in the conflicts between Peter and Paul. Uh, we see it in Galatians, as Paul writes against um, circ the need for circumcision, uh, because uh, the sense as, as a Jew, it was like, well, this is a Jewish faith, and Jesus is a Jew, and he's a Jewish Messiah. And so if people want to be a part of this Jewish salvation, then they need to become Jewish, which meant they needed to follow the law, which meant three things. Uh, number one, it meant that they needed to be circumcised. Number two, that they would follow dietary restrictions as set forth in the law. And then three, that they would follow the religious calendar. Like that was like at its base what it meant to be Jewish. And so there was this constant back and forth between Jewish Christians and Gentiles, that it, because there's only two people, right, in the New Testament, right? There's Jews and then everybody else. And everybody else are Gentiles. So that's the all people. And as they're wrestling, like, if they, the Gentiles, want to be a part of us and our Jewish Messiah, they need to become like us. Well, Galatians, and in Galatians, Paul writes in very strong language against that, right? And we see it again here in Romans. There's this constant conflict of the Jewishness, of, of how Jewish you have to be to be a part of this. And so as, as Paul is writing, he is writing to this church that has this conflict, and he is inviting them to see 
that the salvation of God, God's grace gift, is for all people. And that this isn't merely a Jewish thing that they become a part of, but rather that they all become a part of something new and bigger and greater. And so if I could give you a simple framework to follow or a roadmap to follow across Romans, it would look like this. That there are really five key movements in the argument across Romans. Now, many people, can, you could disagree with this, that's fine, but I'll fight in Texas Aggie, so I'm trying to keep it real simple right here for us. And those five movements look like this. That good news, God's grace gift is available for all who would believe. And this is Romans 1, 1 through 17. And this passage is, uh, uh, concludes or climaxes at the thesis of Romans, which is uh, Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save for all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So for all people, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because God's grace gift is for all people. That's 1, uh, 1 through 17. The next step in that movement, and it's where we're going to spend our time today, is that all people, again, remember the importance of all, Jew and Gentile, all people need God's grace gift. And that picks up at 118 and carries through Romans 3 and verse 20. And in this section, at the end of chapter 1, Paul lays out why the Gentiles need the grace gift because of their idolatry. In chapter 2, and this is, this is salty, he lays out why the Jews need salvation because of their self-righteousness. And then he puts a bow on it at the beginning of chapter 3 and saying we all need this grace gift because of our sin. It moves on from there that that grace gift is received not by works of the law, but by faith from 321 to 425. And chapter 4 is the example of Abraham. And so he says, you see the example of Abraham. It was uh, through his faith that, uh, that righteousness was, was reckoned unto him. And so he gives the example of Abraham, very Jewish example, because again, he's making this argument to Jews. He gives this example of faith in Abraham. And then 5 through 11, he lays out how God's grace gift changes our relationship with God. And he lays out and walks through, here's where we see some of these incredible passages, these gems in Romans. Of five eight four, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Why does he point that out? So that we would have confidence. You go, dude. God loved you while your back was turned to Him. Like, what makes you think that God is going to stop loving you when you start chasing after Him? Are you kidding me? Like, there is confidence, there is security to be found in this new relationship with God. And five six seven and eight lays that out. We remember in Romans seven, Paul wrestles. Like, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I do want to do. Ah, oh, what a wretched person I am. Who will save me? And what do you say? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. That even in my wrestling and in my struggle, I'm secure in my relationship with God. Romans in chapter eight, towards the end, if God is for me, who can be against me? Verse 31. And so he lays that out nine through 11. Uh, he wrestles with the Jewish relationship is the Jews is God's chosen people. And then what's that mean now in light of the cross? And then ultimately, starting in verse 12 and verse one, uh, how God's grace gift changes the way that we live. And you see how no matter really wherever you start in the argument, it stays fluid, right? And so, so that's Romans at 30,000 feet. Why do I tell you this? Because you need to understand that this is the argument that, Jesus, that, that Paul is making, that God has been faithful to his covenant promises, and that we are now taking the invitation into the next step. 
But today in chapter two, we have to zoom in like from Yellowstone down to a specific trail to Romans chapter two. And what we see here in Romans two is Paul making the argument for why the Jews need God's grace gift. And he's pointing out, and it's a very sharp, it's a very sharp call out for him to say, you need to see why, yes, even you need this God's grace gift. He calls them out so that he can call them up. He doesn't call them out to beat them up. He calls them out to call them up and into the relationship, into life as it was meant to be. So we're going to look at Romans 2, at the, at the things that Paul is calling the, the Jewish folks in the church out at, and then we're going to see if maybe some of that is true in us as well. So there's 30,000 feet, boom, let's go. And this was, by the way, this was a big deal, so much so that Paul anticipates that they're not going to like what he has to say. So that in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, I, I can hear you say, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? He can already hear them pushing back on this. And he'll talk about it, it is valuable, but you're not exempt from needing God's grace. All right, so here we go. Romans chapter two, beginning in verse one. Uh, the first thing that he puts out is, is, might sound familiar if we put it in today's language, is this right here. Do what I say, not as I do. Do as I say, not as I do. Some of us already started getting uncomfortable thinking, wait a minute, did my spouse call you before you gave this message? Right, we get a little bit uncomfortable because you know the reality is it's really easy to give instruction for somebody else but not live it for yourself, right? As parents, right, it's really easy to go, you need to get off that screen. No, no screen time for you. No screen time. Do as I say, not as I do. It's really easy for us to get into that. And the same thing was true for these folks. Let's look at verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who will do such things is in accordance with the truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That he was looking at the folks there and he's going, you, in the in beginning of chapter, end of chapter one, you, you saw this argument that I lay out against the Gentiles. And you're like, yep, they need a savior. Yep, they need that grace. Yep, they, you, yeah, they're doing those things. Can you believe they did that, Paul? I mean, really? I mean, we gotta call them out on that. Like, we gotta let them know. Because Paul's like, yeah, but you're doing the same thing. As you judge them, you're judging yourself because you're teaching something, but you're not living it out. It turns out, friends, if something is true enough to teach, it's true enough to live. If it's true enough to teach, then it ought to be true enough to live. Because if it's not, here's what'll start to happen. If we get caught up in teaching the best Bible study, but we give no energy to living out our relationship with God, what'll start to happen is pride will start to creep into our lives. And we'll stop asking the internal question. We'll stop praying the Psalm, God search me and know me and see if there's any um, way in me that is, that is unpleasing. And we'll start looking 
for all the ways that are unpleasing to everyone else. That when that pride starts to creep in, our hearts start to fade away from God. That we move from being God-centered and God-faithful, we start to drift, we start to become self-centered and self-faithful. And that's called sin. This wasn't a, a new um, call out, it wasn't a new uh, criticism on, on, on folks like this. Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 15, he calls out very similar. He says this, these people honor me with their lips. They teach what is right, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. They teach man-made ideas and commands as if from God. You see, when we, stop, when we stop living out what we teach, we start to move our hearts further away from God because we start to believe that we are what is right and that God falls in line with what we want as opposed to us falling in line with God. That we get so good at calling people out that we forget to live out the truth. Calling out the truth is no substitute for living out the truth. Same idea said differently. Calling out the truth in other people, being really good at pointing out what they do wrong is no substitute for living it out. And, and they have the same thing because you see, uh, verse two, you say, we know that God's judgment is on those who do such things in accordance with the truth. In other words, don't you see like what we're calling out is right. Like, I'm calling you, yeah, you're not being a great husband. Yeah, you're not following the law. Yeah, you're not being faithful to God. And the scriptures back me up. I know the verses, and I know the argument to make sure that you know that you're wrong. Mm. Anybody? Give me the argument. I know all the verses to prove why you're not right, and I am. And yet, calling out the truth is no substitute for living out the truth. Because again, once we get really good at pointing that one finger, we forget that there are three fingers pointing right back at us. So we get really good at calling it out in other people, we get really good at forgetting that it's in me too. And that leads to self-righteousness, which is the very reason Paul is saying that they need God's grace gift. You see, this is a matter of the heart. God always looks and when we get uh, really good at calling out but not living out, again, our heart starts to drift away. And then even though we may call out the truth, God sees our hearts. Remember in, in, when, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, when God chose David as the king, what was his reasoning? What did he say? The scripture said, the Lord said to Samuel, do not judge by his appearance or height, the outward things. Even if he looks right, does right, says right, calls out right, don't look at that, for I rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's why it's so important when we do call out the truth in others. Make no mistake, Paul is calling out the truth. That when we call out the truth in others, that we do it in love. And that we remember, even though tough love is still love, that what we say and how and why we say it matter. Speaking the truth 
doesn't give us permission to be a jerk. Speaking the truth doesn't give you a permission to be a jerk. And if you don't like it, if that's too on the nose for you, I'll say it like this. Remember, those with tact have less to retract. That when you choose your words well, you don't have to come back and go, well, you know I meant it in love. And you, know, and you don't have to spend time debating over how you meant it. You can spend your energy on getting things right again. Those with tact have less to retract. Calling out the truth is no substitute for living out the truth. Being a good teacher doesn't exempt you or doesn't, uh, if it's true enough to teach, then it's true enough to live. Speaking the truth doesn't give you permission to be a jerk, right? When we find ourselves saying, do as I say, not as I do, that's an indicator that we're moving towards self-righteousness, the very same thing that caused them to need grace caused us to need grace. I wonder, is there any of this in you? And if so, I wonder, would you be willing, would you be humble enough to receive this and to leave it here today? You know what? I want to live with integrity. I want there to be congruency between what I speak and teach and what I do. Number two, Paul continues. He hits to verse four. And we might today call it like this. If I don't get caught, then it doesn't count. (laughs) If I don't get caught sinning, then it doesn't count. I can, I, I can recall many times like with my kids like, uh, that like I would catch them uh, with their hand in the proverbial cookie jar. Uh, not the literal one, uh, of course not. There's no literal cookie jar. Uh, but if there was, I would have cameras and like laser alarm systems on it because uh, I bought those cookies and they my cookies, they ain't your cookies. Uh, no, but that we would catch them with their hand in the proverbial cookie jar uh, and I would say, dude, what are you doing? To which he would respond, oh, I didn't think you were awake. What? Oh, I I didn't think that I would get caught. (laughs) Yeah, okay, does that make it right? No. And so often, don't we, like we let our feelings be the standard of what is right and wrong. I can remember looking back on life in times that I dabbled for the first time in particular sins and, and leaving that place thinking, huh, I don't feel that bad. Wow, I, I mean, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I really thought that like I would have been like smited with a bolt of lightning bolt, you know? I mean, I thought I would have like, you know, been so heavy with the guilt of my sin that I couldn't even walk to the truck. I kind of walked out going, man, I don't, I don't feel that bad. Maybe, maybe this is okay. And then all of a sudden, I took a little step. And then as if my feelings determine God's standard, but it's not the case. And the same thing was happening here. But they were looking going, do you think that because God hasn't brought punishment, that that gives you permission to do what you're doing? By no means. And what he's looking at here in verse four, he says, or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That the argument he's making is that he's, you're looking back on God's faithfulness to his covenant promises and his faithfulness to you as the chosen people. And you remember the history of Israel. You, you remember that over and over and over again, this series would play out in the lives of the Jews. Here's what would happen. They would say, God, we need you. Come save us. God would come save them. They would go, dude, God, you are amazing. Thanks so much. I got it from here. And then the next 40 years, they would ruin their lives. And then they would go, hey, God, can you come save us? And God would come save them. And they'd go, whew, 
man, God, we've been up a creek without you. Also, we're good. And then for the next 40 years, they would go and run, and they just followed the cycle over and over and over again. And that God was faithful, and they were confusing God's faithfulness for his permission. They were confusing that God is continually faithful, continually chasing after. And that kindness wasn't to give permission to keep on sinning, but rather it was to lead them to repentance, to go, don't you see the way that you're living is getting you your worst. There's life as it's meant to be. Come this way. That the purpose of kindness and God's patience is to lead to repentance. His slow speed and consequence isn't permission to sin, but rather it's an invitation to turn your ways and come back towards him. Paul pulls no punches in verse six. He says, make no mistake, for God will repay each according to his own deeds. If you keep going thinking that God gives you permission to sin and you just keep on sinning, but there's gonna be real consequence for that. Proverbs chapter five says this, mark well that God doesn't miss a move you make. He is aware of every step you take. The shadow of your sin will overtake you. You'll find yourself stumbling all over yourself in the dark. Death is the reward of an undisciplined life. Your foolish decisions will trap you in a dead end. In other words, though God might not bring final judgment today, he's patient, pursuing kindness. Make no mistake, there are real consequences for your sin here and now. If you're not disciplined, and you think, oh, a drink a day is no big deal. Oh, three a day, What's, it's, it's just three. When I was in college, it was like 30. Like, dude, I'm good. I can stop any time that I want. You live undisciplined. All of a sudden, those things start to, like a shadow starts to overtake you. And you find yourself trapped. That can happen at work. It can happen at home. It can happen in your own life, in your personal life, in your public life that these things will start to come and you'll think that, oh, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. No, those people, they were stupid. They did that, they got caught because they were stupid. I'm different. I'm not like them. You know what that's called? Pride. You gotta understand that my mama always told me, I didn't know she was telling me the scriptures then, but she told me the truth. Pride goes before fall. And Proverbs chapter 16 says, in verse 18 says, first the pride then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. And that when we think that because we've never been caught, we never will be, because there's never been consequence for the actions that we know that are against God, there never will be, we're on a one-way street to crashing. It'll either happen because you get exposed or because you implode. In other words, you'll either be called out or you will destroy yourself from the inside out. Either way, that like a shadow creeping up as the sun comes up or comes down, your sin will overtake you. Make no mistake. Just because you don't get caught doesn't mean that your sin doesn't count. There are consequences for living life apart from the way God has intended. And it's consequences that require God's grace gift. And he wanted them to see that. So third, very quickly, uh, I'm not sure what time this finishes. Uh, I know that some of you want to go watch the Cowboys, and like, I commend uh, that you are faithful to want to see the beginning of them losing a game. Uh, but, like, spoiler alert, they're going to lose. And it's, if you really cared about it, you'd have came to the 9 o'clock service. So 
Anyways, number three, <laughs> number three, Paul continues the argument. I promise I won't go long, just a medium. And so uh, number three, my blank exempts me from having to do that. My fill in the blank exempts me from having to do that. As we'll see in verse 17, Paul's laying out, you rely on your chosenness as if that will exempt you from living things out. Verse 17 says, but you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and determine what is best because you are instructed in the law. And then, and then Paul gets salty. And like he turns a page and he starts to call them out on some very real that you say that you're this, but that's not what's happening. Watch this. He gets salty with them and he says this, and you're instructed in the law, but if you're so sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then that teach others, will you not teach yourself? that you're calling all these people out and you're judging all of them, saying that they need what you have because of what they're doing and you're doing the exact same thing. That's self-righteousness. That's self-faithfulness. And that requires God's grace gift. And he goes on just because it's good to hear. He says, will you preach against stealing? And do you steal? That you forbid adultery? Do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, you're choosing to believe that you are exempt from living a certain way. And because of that, the very people God is chasing after, they're turning their backs away from God because of the way that you are living. Jesus told a parable story very similar to this. Stop me if you've heard it, but a preacher, a worship leader, and the person you hate the most walk into a bar. It wasn't exactly like that, but it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And remember Jesus talking to the religious leaders, and they ask him, what do we do to inherit eternal life in Luke chapter 10? He answers with the Shema, he answers with the Shema, and the answer wasn't up there. It was, you, you had to know that one, but now you know. Uh, he answers with the Shema, and they say, okay, trying to be smart, Eliki, but who is my neighbor? You say, love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? And so he tells them a story, a preacher, a pastor, and the person you hate the most, preacher, worship leader, the person you hate the most, walk into a valley. And the valley that he speaks of is one in which it was not uncommon for people to fake having been robbed hide in the corners and ask as people walk by, please help me, please help me. And then as you come to help and you're vulnerable, they jump you and steal from you. And so he, with that as the background, he says, uh, there's this man who's been robbed in this valley where this is common, though you might think maybe he's not been robbed. And a priest walks by and the priest sees him and he looks the other way and keeps going and doesn't help him. If it was 2019, you pull up to the corner, you see the guy, you're like, man, he's probably conning me anyways as you start to switch through because ESPN radio is on a commercial break, so you go to the other. You look the other way or you look down at the text because you don't want to text and drive, so you'll text and, you'll, you'll text and ignore, and so here you are. 
the priest walks the other way. The worship leader, the Levite, he does the same thing, except he does one over. Rather than walking by and just looking the other way, he walks by on the other side of the street, keeps on going. And then the person they hate the most, the Samaritan, the person they least expect, and I don't know who that might be for you, I'll let you fill in the blank, but the person they least expect comes up, sees the man, helps the man, and then takes him to the next town, puts him up in the hotel, leaves his card on file. It says, if he needs anything, then you charge it to me and I'll come back in a week. And if I didn't leave you enough money, then I'll pay the balance. You just keep taking care of him. And he says, which one of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. You see, so often, for them, they thought they were exempt from that because they're the religious leaders. They're the smart ones. They're the educated ones. They're the fill-in-the-blank ones, so they don't have to do that. And yet Jesus tells a sharp story and say, no, that's exactly what you have to do. You see, whenever we find ourselves thinking that because of our status, title, money, whatever, that we're exempt from doing the things that Jesus says to do, we become self-centered, self-righteous, and we need God's grace. Brennan Manning said this, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. you got to understand, when we choose to live exempt, it doesn't merely affect me, myself, and I. It affects all of you, and it affects all of those that don't yet know the love of Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel changes the way that we live. That we don't go and live and work and serve because we want to earn God's attention. Just the opposite. Because we've got God's attention, because we've got God's love, we go and live differently. We don't work to earn God's love. Because we are loved, we go and work. We go and change and live differently. And they weren't doing that. And it was causing God's name to be blasphemed among the very people God was pursuing after. You see, this culminates, this call out culminates as they argue through it all. You've got to understand verse 29, and he closes this out. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual, not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. They were holding on to their Jewishness as a reason to be able to teach, but not live. As a way to go, it doesn't matter what I do because I've not been caught. As a way to go, I'm exempt from that because of this. And he says, no, you've missed it. You think this is it, but this isn't it at all goes on into chapter three as he brings it all to a close in this section of laying out why it is that they need the grace gift. In verse 21 of chapter three, it's not on the screen, but I'll read it. As he lays all that out, we need this. And he says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God or the covenant faithfulness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction Watch it. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, us and them. 
For there is no distinction, verse 23, you know it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But do you know verse 24? They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, his faithfulness, because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over sins previously committed. It was to prove at present time that he himself is righteous, faithful, and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did Paul call out the sin in the Jewish people? It wasn't to put them down or to beat them up, to go, you should be better, shame on you. He does it so that they would see that this is how life is meant to be in relationship with God. He calls out sin to lead to relationship with God. Not to put them down, not because he's better than, but to go, this is the way life is, to give them an invitation. We gotta do the same thing. Because when we don't, we get self-righteous. When we don't, we start thinking it doesn't matter how I say what I say because what I say is true. Nope. And all these things. So as we think about Romans and the big argument moving everybody forward towards that grace gift, you see in chapter two how Paul was setting the Jews up to go, you need this grace gift just as much as everybody else. And you need it because of your self-righteousness. And friends, when there's self-righteousness in us, self-faithfulness in us, we have to be humble enough to realize that we need that grace gift too. That we're not beyond it. And that God is faithful to give it. Not because we've earned it, but because he loves us. Because he's been faithful from the beginning and he's faithful today. Let's pray. Daddy, thanks so much that you are faithful. That no matter what self-faithfulness is inside of us, that your faithfulness is even greater. And that no matter where we turn or where we run, no matter what we seek and where we seek it, we have your attention. You're in pursuit of us. And that you'll call out things in tough love and you'll convict us, but you do it so that we can come closer to right relationship, so we can live life as it's meant to be. God, I pray that if there's anything in our lives that would look like self-righteousness. If there's anything in us that looks like, do as I say, not as I do, God, would you call it out? Would you remove it? Would you heal it so that we could be the kind of people that do what we say and say what we do? God, if there's any, if I don't get caught, it doesn't count nests in us. God, would you call us out? Would you lead us to integrity? that there might be a, a congruency between what we say, what we do, how we live when people are watching and how we live when no one is watching. No, we wouldn't do that because we don't want to get busted, but we would do it because we want to honor you. God, if there's any sense of my fill-in-the-blank exempts me from that, God, would you humble us? Would you remind us that you yourself came serve, not to be served. That you humbled yourself and were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and that our mindset would be the same as yours. God, would you help us to be a strong example? An example of love. An example of faithfulness. That we are faithful. We strive to prove and show how
faithful you are. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, I hope that this was an encouragement to you. Well, there was a bit of a challenge. And I hope that being able to see this big picture, you throw it on the screen, that this big picture uh, is, a, is a good roadmap for you as you wrestle with and read through some of your favorite passages uh, in Romans. And that you can look back, and we'll leave this on here, and you can take a picture of it if you want. It'll be a nice roadmap for you.